If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. D.H. Lawrence is a writer who both broke new ground and appalled senses, with novels such as The Rainbow, Women in Love and, of course, Lady Chatterley's Lover. But the writer's life was just as fascinating as his work. Characterised by a tempestuous marriage, a constant battle against class prejudice and a bitter backlash against vitriolic literary critics. For today's episode, I was joined by Francis Wilson, whose new biography, Burning Man, examines a pivotal decade in Lawrence's life and tries to get under the skin of a difficult and contradictory character. Your new biography, Burning Man, looks at a decade in the life of the writer D.H. Lawrence from 1915 to 1925. So what was it about Lawrence that makes him such an intriguing biographical subject? Well, Lawrence was a fantastically complicated man and a fantastically complicated writer. And I don't think the uh, 20th century culture and certainly 21st, 21st century culture, has ever really come to terms with how, how difficult Lawrence was. He was, um, he was someone that I don't think we've ever really understood. And so I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to return to him and see what it was he had to tell us, because Lawrence has been silenced since 1970. He's in effect been cancelled. He was the first writer to ever be cancelled. And I thought it was, you know, now was an interesting time to have a look at what happens to writers after they've been removed from the university syllabus. It's their life after death. So you mentioned there that he's he's very 
contradictory. In fact, you call him in the book a tangle of contradictions. Yes. How so? Can you give us some examples? Well, Lawrence believed in contradictions. If we try to make sense of him, we end up getting ourselves into a complete mess. Lawrence kind of built his whole kind of literary persona on contradictions. And in this sense, I mean, he modelled himself on, on, on William Blake, who believed there was no progress without contraries. So Lawrence believed that, you know, you couldn't have love without hate for example. He was born into these contradictions in as much as his, um, his parents were opposites. His mother was, um, his mother was all mind, his father was all body. His father was a coal miner and as a, bur- a burly man who, who, lived in, um, who lived in the underworld, as Lawrence saw it, with lots of other burly men. He wasn't literate. You know, when he came out of the, uh, when he came out of the, um, the mines, he went to the pub Lawrence's mother was um, a social climber. She believed that she was middle class, although she she wasn't. She was you know, she was working class, but she had aspirations. But she wanted her children to be readers and thinkers. She didn't want her children to go down the mines. And so, for a very sensitive boy like Lawrence, he saw himself as um, as raised in, if you like, in the marriage of heaven and hell. His mother was cerebral. His father was physical. They fought and fought and fought. But out of that friction, out of that agon of oppositions, late Victorian oppositions, he was forged. And so he carried on in that. He carried on holding fast to that belief that you need to have contradictions in order to um, to make any sense of the world. But it's meant that people haven't been able to make any sense of Lawrence because his contradictions are so profound. You mentioned earlier that he's in effect been cancelled and he's gone through many assessments and reassessments. What are some of the the strongest criticisms or accusations that have been levelled against him, both in his lifetime and also subsequently? Okay, it's very, very interesting. It's very interesting subject. So Lawrence was um, was set, not only censored but kind of um, sentenced to death in his lifetime. His first big book, The Rainbow, which he saw as a kind of rewriting of the Old Testament. He was very, very religious writer. He saw it as a kind of rewriting of the Old Testament, but as seen through the kind of sexual awakening of three generations of the same women living on the Derbyshire Nottingham borders where he was born. That was withdrawn from publication in 1915 and remaining copies, the 1011 remaining copies in the publishers were burnt. On what grounds? On, on, on the grounds that it was obscene, the book was obscene. Now, um, the, uh, the magistrate who condemned the book to death found it hard to say exactly what it was that was obscene about the book because there were no, it didn't contain obscenities. It's not like Lady Chatterley would. Lady Chatterley would contain you know, words like arse. You know, there were 12 obscenities in Lady Chatterley. There were no obscenities in The Rainbow at all. It was a beautiful beautiful book and to read it now is a very kind of moving experience and so I think the only way we can really understand why that book was penalized so much and it destroyed Lawrence is because he was being penalized he was seen as a working class upstart he's a, he was a working class upstart the only working class novelist the first and only working class um, novelist the English had ever known about he was um, operating in um 
in a very sort of upper middle class, um, upper class kind of um, world of the Bloomsbury's, for example. Everyone was everyone was snooty about Lawrence, and he was married to a German woman. This was during, obviously, the First World War. Not only was he married to a German woman, but her, uh, but her uncle was um, <laughs> the Red Baron, <laughs> the bloody Red Baron. And so the only kind of, um, the only pilot that any of the British soldiers had heard of, the only German fighter pilot, was her uncle. And she had been married to someone else before she ran away with Lawrence. So she was seen herself as a kind of fallen woman. And Lawrence was very, very vocal about being anti-war. And so he was, I mean, he wasn't anti-war because he was a pacifist. Lots of people wrongly believe he was a pacifist. He believed profoundly in conflict and in violent conflict, but he was anti-this war because he thought it was complete nonsense to destroy civilization and to um and to kill this generation of young men. And so everything about Lawrence was an irritant. And so in order to silence Lawrence, get rid of his book. So that was the first kind of cancellation of Lawrence, if you like. And after that, Lawrence, and he left the country. He took himself into exile after the war and lived in Italy and, and eventually America. And the Americans kind of accepted him uh, as their own. He reinvented himself as an American writer. But then he was, um, was cancelled again in 1970. So he had a kind of life as a cult writer, you know, and people saw that he had been truly martyred and he saw himself as a Christ figure, that he had been truly martyred in his own life. And in his afterlife, he died in 1930, he kind of rose again as a kind of as a, a, a prophet of the sexual revolution. And he was hero worshipped in the 60s after the Lady Chatterley trial in 1960. But then in 1970, a young um, PhD student called Kate Millett, wrote an incendiary book. It was her PhD thesis, one of the most successful PhD theses I can think of, called Sexual Politics, in which she um, she was very much speaking for second wave feminism, in which she described Lawrence as phallocentric. And, you know, what she meant by phallocentric was that he, um, you know, he, um, he, wor- he worshipped the phallus and he saw men as having... Um, um, a kind of mystical power over women. And there was a lot of silliness in Lawrence, a lot of silliness in late Lawrence. And whilst her arguments uh, absolutely hold up, because Lawrence is contradictory and she didn't understand his contradiction, she couldn't see that he also worshipped female sexuality. And so she just took one strand of Lawrence, took it completely out of context. But Lawrence was destroyed as um, as a figure. And he wasn't seen, what's most painful, I think, for Laurentians like me, is that he wasn't seen as kind of dangerous and incendiary as he wanted to be seen. He was seen as essentially silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting there is that, is that you said, as well as his work being controversial, he personally, you just described him as an irritant. And throughout the book, um, you get different people's reactions to meeting Lawrence, many of which are very polarised. He obviously had a way of either beguiling people or rubbing them up the wrong way. What do you think he was like as a, as a man at this time in his life? 
what I wanted to pull off in this book is to get a sense of um, yeah, what it was like being Lawrence, what it was like being in the room with Lawrence, what it was like knowing Lawrence, but what it was like to be inside Lawrence because he was alone of all his kind. There just simply wasn't anyone to compare with him. Certainly wasn't anyone to compare in Eastwood, the small mining community he was brought up in. I mean, so he went through various stages. I think as a um, as a very young man in his um, in his in his teens and early twenties, he was in- very very ambitious. He read through all the books in the local library. He realised that his subject was women. His subject was um, female sexuality. He wanted to write about women from the inside. He was very, very close to his mother. He was much more interested in the subtle complexities of his mother's psyche than his father. He saw his father as a block of flesh. And that's how he always saw men, a kind of a, a block of sturdy masculinity. But women were subtle and complex. He responded to um, women with a kind of intuitive understanding. And really, I mean, this is another of Lawrence's contradictions. He was essentially gay. But um, his obsession with um, the beauty of male bodies and seeing the world always from a female perspective was um, countered by his horror at his own instincts, even though he worshipped the instincts. So here's a real mess for Lawrence. So as a uh, as a young man, he um, had very close um, relationships to, um, to other young men and to young women and read and read and read and started writing kind of gentle, kind of pastoral novels that were really um, pretty like Thomas Hardy's. So he very much belonged to the Edwardian age, if you like. He wasn't doing anything too rebellious until he met Frida, his wife, in 1912, shortly after the Titanic sank. So it was actually the month after the Titanic sank. So there was danger in the in the air. You know, some, something was happening. Um, Lawrence met Frida and Frida came from a kind of very sort of um, very bohemian um, part of part of Germany where, you know, everyone was thinking in a very new age way. You know, her sister was in an open marriage. Frida believed in free love. She, Her previous lover had been um, a man called Otto Gross, who was a disciple of Freud's, who also passionately believed in free love. And through Frida, um, Lawrence began to forge himself into a prophet. This is what Frida wanted him to be, not just a jobbing writer writing kind of very nice pastoral novels in which men wash each other's backs coming out of natural swimming pools. She wanted him to make grand statements about, um, about sex and women. And so he, her influence over him was tremendous. And I think the shift between Lawrence as the writer and Lawrence as the prophet is really, you know, is, is really, really interesting because Lawrence always took himself more seriously as a prophet than he did as a writer. And sometimes his prophecies were right. You say that he took himself very seriously as a writer, and I'm intrigued by his courting of controversy. So was it that he just 
followed his own path and whether that offended people, it did and he didn't care? Was it that he was actually hurt by the condemnation of his work or did he did he court controversy? Did he seek to shock with his work and appall people? After the rainbow was censored and burnt, he courted controversy. He just said, okay, this is what I'm going to be as a writer now. He said, I'm going to retire from the herd and throw bombs into it. And that's essentially what he did. He's very, his career is very like that of Byron, who was also from Nottingham. Exactly 100 years before, Byron had, um, had written, um, written poetry that had very much pleased his readers. And then he'd written, um, then he'd fallen out with his wife and wrote a poem that very much displeased his readers, Don Dewar, and he wrote it in exile. And then he became an antagonist of the state. And this is what kind of Lawrence was modeling himself on. So he decided that he was going to become an incendiary device, a writer as an incendiary device. And so he really courted controversy. So obviously Lawrence had a really interesting upbringing, which, you know, was really formative in his work. But you've chosen to focus here on a later period from, as you say, when the, when the rainbow was censored in 1915 to 1925. Why did you choose to just focus your biography on that decade of his life rather than taking in a broader span? Mm. Well, mainly because... Um, there have been so many biographies of Lawrence. There have been so many cradle to grave biographies of Lawrence. And so we sort of, we know exactly where Lawrence was on every single day of his life. I mean, there's nothing kind of new to uncover, if you like. So I thought um, if I wanted to, I wanted to do a new interpretation of Lawrence because I felt as if um, the lives that I'd read and I had sort of read them all kind of gave me a kind of flat figure. Really, they didn't excite me about him. They didn't excite me about his work. They told me about someone who was super weird and didn't seem to kind of explain that weirdness to me. I thought they made an interesting man seem quite dull. And so I thought Lawrence has to have a Lawrence-shaped biography. And what I wanted to, what I wanted to draw attention to was um, the way in which Lawrence thought. And Lawrence saw himself as a figure of myth. He didn't just a little bit think himself a figure of myth. He genuinely believed he was a figure of myth. I mean, he saw himself as a resurrected Christ. His identification with Christ was 100%. You know, I mean, he died. I mean, his health was so bad that he kind of, he died every Christmas, more or less anyway, and saw himself as resurrected every Easter when he started to breathe again. But he also... Um, gave himself a symbol. I mean, who gives themselves symbols? He gave himself the symbol of the phoenix. You know, phoenix, the mythical bird that kind of that um, is burnt in it and then rises from its own ashes. And so that for him was another version of the Christ story. You know, this is someone who rises again. You know, you're destroyed and then you rise again. And I wanted to get into the heart of the book, um, um, how Lawrence thought. And it occurred to me, the more I read Lawrence, that he modelled himself consciously on Dante's Pilgrim and that his life was structured around the divine comedy because he was so fascinated by the fact that he was born in the underworld, that his, uh, his father belonged to this completely different species of men who um, lived and worked in, in the inferno. And so Lawrence saw himself as having kind of begun his life in, um, in an underworld and ended his life 7,500 feet above sea level in the Rocky Mountains. And as I 
followed Lawrence around the world, as I followed his footsteps, I saw very, very strikingly that every house he lived in, even the houses that he lived in in London, were uh, placed on ledges. That he lived at altitudes and each home was a little bit higher than the next. There, there were kind of two ways of approaching this strange, uh, this strange journey he had through life. One was that he was, he was turning his life very much into the journey of Dante's pilgrim from the underworld to paradise. And the other is that he was trying to get high, to higher and higher altitudes because he needed to breathe because he was tubercular. He didn't want anyone to know he was tubercular because it was akin to having AIDS. You know, seen as a filthy and infectious disease. And so he kept that a secret. And so he just, so it was better to make it look like he was on some kind of, on some grand allegorical journey. And then, of course, what Dante's uh, Divine Comedy is about a man lost in the middle of his life. So I thought I'd do Lawrence lost in the middle of his life. So this is a journey about middle years. And I think biographers, and autobiographers tend to avoid middle years. We're interested in the passion of youth and then kind of what happens as someone's, as someone's life fades out. But the middle years, I mean, the, my middle years myself, I know are very, very rich. And so I thought, let's look at, let's look at those and let's look at them um, in terms of um, Lawrence's own plotting of his life and it yielded such interesting results for me. And I felt as if I'd understood something about um, Lawrence that I'd never got before. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think there's no, I mean, there is no one like him. There's no one like him. And his, in the end, his, his absolute belief in himself is um is a thing of wonder to behold we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does or that silly thing you said in a meeting maybe it's time to get it all off your chest whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. He certainly crammed a lot into that decade. And also, um, this decade finds him traveling all over the world. I was wondering about how much travel um, influenced his writing or his work. Was he inspired by it? Yes, it was about movement for him. He couldn't he couldn't stop moving. Apparently, this is uh, typical of consumptives. They're always wanting a better place. This place is no good. I've got to get to a better place. So it's a it's a desperation for um, for better air. He was also, uh, I think, claustrophobic. He needed, when he had his fantastic tempers, and they were fantastic, the people who were around him when he had one of his um, rages just said that watching a a skinny little man like that go berserk was quite terrifying. All these rages took place inside. When he was outside, he was a completely different person. And so he... um, he, want, he wanted space, but he also loved the act of movement. So in a sense, it was, I mean, he was always on the move, but it was the journey and not the arrival that mattered. The minute he got to Ceylon or Australia or um, Mexico, he was off again. He didn't settle for long. I mean, he, he was looking for the primitive world. He was trying, it was time travel. He wanted to go back as far in time as he could. And so, you know, he ended up kind of settling around um, the um, Native Americans in New Mexico because um, he believed that this was close to essential man. But his writing was hugely influenced by this this desire for motion, desire for movement, and his his travel writing in particular. I mean, one of his travel books, uh, uh, Sea in Sardinia, begins comes over one an absolute necessity to move. That's his opening line. God, it's good. And you you get a sense of the the sublime kind of the sublime power of his writing. Who begins a travel book like that? But this absolute necessity to move is what categorizes his novels as well. In his novels, his characters are just, they never stay still. I mean, they're going higher and higher and higher and higher into the um, into the Alps in Women in Love, just as Lawrence went higher and higher and higher into the uh, mountains in his own in his own life. Throughout this time, he, he knew a raft of interesting and influential figures. Who were some of the most significant connections that that ha- perhaps had the biggest impact on on him and his work? Yes, it's, yes, he did know uh, he did know an awful lot of people, and they were very keen to know him, mainly because it's a kind of working class fetish. It was interesting for people like um, like Lady Ottoline Morell to have in her. So he was uh, a bit of a novelty, essentially. He was very much seen as a novelty. Yes, you know what was his accent like? You know, he was. It was good to have Lawrence at your table because it made the it made the Bohemians look even more Bohemian. He felt fantastically patronised 
by um, by Bloomsbury, and he was fantastically patronised. And what he was accused of, completely rightly, was accepting people's patronage and then um, writing them up, <laughs> writing them up in his books as hor- as horrifying monsters, and because he couldn't stand the fact that he needed their patronage so much, he needed connectivity because he needed to explore people. He especially needed to explore women. He used the women in his life as copy. He needed to understand what it was like to be them in order for him to write his women characters. He needed he needed figures in his life as much as a, um, a, a as Lucien Freud needed sitters. You know, he couldn't do it from his imagination. So that what I've tried to organise the book around are his most important relationships and looking at relationships that have been overlooked, really, in um, in the Cradle's Grave biographies, because there simply isn't enough space to write about these relationships. But, for example, his the middle of the book, Purgatory, is about his relationship with um, a homosexual con man called Morris Mar- uh, Magnus. And and the and the travel writer and um, well-known Edwardian paedophile Norman Douglas, and so it's about kind of Lawrence meeting up with those two in in Florence in 1919, and Lawrence amongst the uh, Lawrence amongst the um, the Bohemians and the homosexuals, and how a man who was as terrified of Bohemia and homosexuality as Lawrence found himself kind of fixated and fascinated by their company and used it for his writing. So, um, you know, no one forgave him for the parodies that he produced of them in his books, but his parodies of Morris Magnus and uh, Norman Douglas are second to none. And I think they give the lie to the myth that Lawrence was, was, uh, was humorless. He was fantastically funny when he, when he met funny people. Um, one relationship I just wanted to ask you about was uh, that with his wife. How would you characterize that? Yeah, Lawrence's relationship with Frida was um, almost impossible for anyone outside of that marriage to understand. I mean, we can never understand anyone's marriage anyway. But he saw um, Frida was a fundamental part of his body, I think. I mean, when she when she wasn't in the room, he lost a sense of who he was. Frida was... Um, of course, the polar opposite of Lawrence, because he believed in opposites. She was all flesh and he was all bone. She was all body and he was all mind. He uh, got his reading of um, uh, of female sexuality from Frida. It was a com- completely kind of combative marriage. They're fights, you know, where they would roll around on the floor punching each other and terrified their visitors because the, the fights were theatre. I don't think they fought ever when they were on their own together. They enjoyed each other's company. But when there were other people there, they would put on this performance of arguing and and um, and he would punch her in the stomach and she would punch him in the face. And then five minutes later, they'd be dusting each other down and talking about a particularly nice macaroni cheese they enjoyed the night before. And so it was a, um, it was a thing unto itself. Lawrence needed to have violence in relationships because his parents had a violent relationship. He didn't understand any other. Frida thought it was sexy. 
exciting. Men had to be real men. For Lawrence, who was so ill and frail, it was hard for him to keep up with the real man, the he-man <laughs> image for her. His friends loathed her. Everyone who met uh, Frieda, uh, who was a fan of Lawrence, loathed her. They said that she killed him. Why? She, well, because she was vulgar. She smoked in his face when he was tubercular. She did absolutely nothing. She was bone idle. She stayed in bed all day. She was an aristocrat. So Lawrence not only did all the writing, but um, he um, he cooked the food that he had grown himself in the garden that he had planted, and he gave it to her in bed. And he kind of he was a, he was a servant to her, which he very much kind of wanted to be. He believed in the class hierarchy and that she was um, she was kind of uh, she was superior to him in the kind of in the chain of being but they felt pe- friends of his like Aldous Huxley believed firmly that Frida killed him that had Frida ever looked after Lawrence he wouldn't have died in the exhausted state in which he did die when he was 44 after which Frida instantly got um got hitched got remarried <laughs> so she she began her life again the minute that uh, Lawrence had died and that was also seen as kind of you know a little bit vulgar she might have mourned a bit more but Frida wasn't a nurturer she wasn't a nurturer and this is not what Lawrence wanted Lawrence wanted someone who lived hard and she lived hard so I I actually did a module in on Lawrence at university but I remember from that module that we pretty much did the novels and we didn't do much beyond that whereas you argue interestingly that Lawrence's novels though they might grab the most attention aren't necessarily his best work what would you argue is yeah I um I think it's a real shame that Lawrence has been um it's been cauterized in this way that Lawrence is seen now as a novelist and not a very good novelist and a novelist five of whose novels were bad and two were good um and this is the fault of F.R. Leavis who championed Lawrence in the 50s and 60s and wrote an important book about Lawrence called D.H. Lawrence it's H. Lawrence colon novelist <laughs> and so it's it got the people who read Lawrence at the time, you know, when when Lawrence was being published in the 1920s, the novels were a fraction of the work coming out. I mean, what what really interests me in Lawrence it, um, are the poems, is the travel writing, are the plays, these plays that anticipated the um, kitchen sink dramas of the 50s, plays set in miners' cottages. You know, with um, uh, minor sons reading Swinburne and giggling when their fathers come in from the mines caked in caked in coal dust. I mean, these incredibly tense dramas and um, Lawrence's short stories are quite extraordinary, kind of wor- word perfect, and his uh, and his fragments of writing, fragments that kind of. It didn't evolve into anything that could be generically categorizable. And what's interesting about Lawrence is the novels are not kind of generically categorizable as novels, really. The novels are also their extended collections of short stories, if you like, because he was so bad at plot. Each chapter can be just seen as a short story on its own, or um, they can be seen as prophecies. Or they can be seen as um, bits of uh, bits of travel writing themselves. But I've tried to, in Burning Man, rethink the Lawrence canon 
putting the properly evaluating the novels and um, putting them, placing them in the margins of his work and placing the margins in the centre, if you like. So we get Lawrence as he emerged at the time rather than Lawrence as we have reinvented him post Levis. Mm. Um, so I think finally, there are so many kind of iterations of Lawrence competing for space that we've spoken about here. And as you say, he's he's been subjected the subject of many biographies over time. But what do you think particularly that we should remember about him that perhaps has been lost in all the tangle of contradictions? I think we need to remember what we owe him. And I think part of the silencing of Lawrence is a kind of... uh, is unforgivable because it's hard to imagine the 20th century without Lawrence in it. The integrity of the man. He just fought and fought and fought to get us to think seriously about the intelligence of the body, to think seriously about about sex, to see sex not as something filthy, but something with a sort of sacred beauty to it. The way in which he managed at last to get um, to get sex and sexual jealousy into the novel as a fundamental part of our lives. What he, what he predicted about the destructiveness of modern life, you know, that we were, we were on a hiding to nothing here. You know, he'd, he had his finger on the, on the buzzer in so many ways. And what he, what the way in which he determined to live simply he determined to live away from the herd. He determined not to be, um, not to have himself silenced, but to keep speaking, to keep finding readerships. And his bravery and his refusal to um, to dumb himself down in order to get a readership. He sensed that readers will find me. Readers will find me. And I, um, I think there's no, I mean, there is no one like him. There's no one like him. And his, in the end, his, his absolute belief in himself is, um, is a thing of wonder to behold. That was Frances Wilson. Her book, Burning Man, The Ascent of G.H. Lawrence, is on sale now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Polly. Tune in again on Friday for an episode on women spies in World War II.